blessing on our time, and then we'll get started with the Bible study. Heavenly Father, thanks for uh, just your love, thanks for your grace, thanks for your mercy, thanks God for your care over us. Jesus, we welcome you here, we thank you for being here, for in the midst of your people, You, when we gather, you show up, and so I just ask you tonight that you'd have your way. I pray, God, that you would speak. I pray that we'd have ears to hear. I pray that you would lead and guide the teaching time. I pray for your anointing on the teaching time. I pray your word comes to life in us. And I ask you, God, that we would just be open to receive everything you want to say. And I pray, God, that we'd be open to allow for you to challenge us toward change tonight. I pray change in our hearts, change in our minds changing the way we see things. And I just ask you, God, that you would lead us into that change and that we'd be open for that. I give you thanks tonight for uh, just uh, being here. I give you thanks for really just leading us tonight. I pray, God, you'd have your way. We yield to you. We yield to you. We say have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can take one, use one off the table. Matthew chapter 16. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that web page, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. Matthew chapter 16, I need a volunteer read verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Read up above that and just read what happened there. Just real quick. Okay, like 21. Whatever you want to do. All right. Thanks, that for uh, reading that. Uh, as you can see, there's passage there, and uh, Jesus, prior to that, had uh, asked, "Who who do you think that I am?" Because uh, he, he asked originally, he's like, "Well, who do people say I am?" And they got some answers: a prophet, a teacher, a rabbi, whatever. And well, who do you think that I am? And Peter answered. And and he he got like a hundred percent right. He took the quiz and aced it. You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God. I mean, he goes, you know, he, he talks about who Jesus is, and Jesus is like, yeah, you definitely didn't figure that out on your own because you're blessed because God revealed that to you. And he makes this proclamation of faith. He makes this proclamation of who Jesus is, and it's just uh, it's just a, a glorious moment for Peter. And Jesus prophesies about Peter, who he's going to be, and, and all of that. And then the part that Lori was reading there, 
And then after that, Jesus begins to explain to them, well, this is what's going to happen to me. You're going to go to Jerusalem. These are the things that are going to happen to me. This is how it's going to go. This is the way, this way it is. And as she was reading, she said, well, then Peter took him aside. Now, this is just right after this great revelation, right? This is right after he gets this epiphany of who Jesus is. They take Jesus aside and rebukes him. Rebukes him. Says, well, that can't be. And he explains to him that that's just not, that's not going to happen. And, and Jesus' response to that, and this is what I want, I want you to see, and I want you to begin to understand. Jesus responded to that pretty forcefully. And, and it was, in many ways, this was, we don't read anything else in the New Testament, in the Gospels, any stronger, anything said or anything done by any disciple at any time that Jesus resented as much as this. All right, of all the things they did, of all the stupidity they were involved in, all the dumb questions that they asked, of all the arguments that they got in, of all the accounts that we have of the disciples being off the page with Jesus, this was the one thing that irritated him the most. This here, what Peter does. And this is the strongest reaction we see that he has toward the disciples. Any disciple, at any point, at any time, is right here in this passage. And again, this is right after he had, he had blessed Peter. This is right after he had prophesied over him, this is who you're going to be, this is what it is, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Keys of uh, uh, the gates of the kingdom of heaven, all this stuff. There's Peter and all that. All right? Right after that, this is the strongest reaction is given in the Gospels. Right here. Negative reaction. And there's a reason for that. And as we start the passage that we're looking at in verse 23, it says that after Peter takes him aside, rebukes him, it says Jesus turns and looks at the disciples. The Gospel of Mark gives us that little extra detail. That he turns and he looks at all the disciples at that point. Because you have to understand, Peter was the spokesman for the disciples, but they probably had all been talking about it. This wasn't just some idea that Peter had. They had probably been discussing the matter amongst themselves, and since Peter had just been proclaimed to be, he's the guy, he's the leader, prophesied over the keys, all this stuff, so they, 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 they elected him, say, why don't you go talk to him? He keeps talking about this mess about getting arrested and this mess about getting killed and all this other stuff that's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. You better talk to him because we just proclaimed he's the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the, the, he's the Son of God. He's going to be ruling and we're going to rule at his side. It's the kingdom and we're going to be part of this kingdom. And that's what they were thinking. That's what was in their head. That's what they understood was about to happen. But he kept talking all this nonsense, to them nonsense, that was going against what they believed was going to happen. So they had it figured out, and Jesus kept talking about stuff that didn't make any sense to what they had figured out. Now, if this doesn't sound familiar to you, you're not really thinking. Because this happens all the time where we get something in our head that this is the way it's going to be, but God is saying something else. Or God is doing something else. Or something else just completely different than what we thought was going to happen happens. It happens all the time. Not because God changed His mind, but because we were seeing things wrongly from the start. And that's really the issue that you have going on here is that they were looking at something but they were looking at it wrongly. They, they didn't see it the way God saw it. They weren't hearing what He was saying. They were, they were sure they knew what was about to happen. They were positive they knew what was about to happen. And so that's what they saw, and that's all that they saw. And so all the rest of the stuff that Jesus was talking about was confusing. Why was it confusing? Because it wasn't lining up with what they thought. Well, there's lots of things that don't line up with what we think. And in the way that God does things, and you think about some of the things that Jesus taught, 
How many of those things make no sense to the way people think? You know, I mean, lots of things that he said. Lots of things. And he was, he was teaching this, this doctrine. He was teaching this new way of seeing things, this new way of thinking, this new way of going about life. I mean, these people had been living a certain way. They had been going about their lives a certain way. It was all based on action. It was all based on non-action. It was the things they did, the things they didn't do. And that's what you could see, and that's what mattered. And then Jesus comes along and says, yeah, but what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your mind? And they couldn't get their head around. So why does that matter? It's what we're actually doing or we're not doing, right? Jesus is like, no, it's what's going on in your heart. That's what matters. And, and so he would say things like, you think about some of the things that he was talking about, how if you hate your brother in your heart, what have you done already? You killed him. You murdered him. And they're thinking, I didn't murder anybody. He's like, yeah, but you've hated him. You've hated him in your heart. And, and so it, what matters is in here. And he kept teaching things like that. He, and he kept teaching about... It matters what's going on in your heart. It matters what's going on in your mind. It matters what goes on in the inside. It matters what you're thinking about. It matters the things that you're going about and the things that you're dwelling on and the things that are happening in your mind, the decisions that you're making and the things that you're thinking about. Those kind of things actually matter. And he kept telling them that. They had a hard time. They had a hard time understanding that. He was teaching about concepts like grace and mercy and forgiveness. I mean, he called a, a tax collector to be a disciple. I can only imagine the disciples had a really hard time with that. Here's a guy that's been stealing from them and their families for years and the people that he represented, the tax collectors in general that worked for the Romans and used the Roman muscle in order to take and to steal from his kinsmen and their families and them in particular. They have been, been ripped off by these guys their whole lives. Their families have been ripped off by these tax collectors their whole lives. And Jesus calls one and he becomes a disciple like them. How weird was that? But he's teaching them a concept of forgiveness. He's teaching a concept of mercy. He's teaching a concept of grace. That he goes and he actually hangs out with a bunch of tax collectors in a house. They have a party together. And he spends time with them. You think about all the things that seemed wrong that he did, like he would touch a leper. You're not supposed to touch lepers. He did it. He touched dead people. Okay, okay, they came back to life. But they were dead when he touched them. You can't do that. That's not allowed. And there are all these things that he was teaching and all these things that he was doing that in their minds and the way that they saw things, the way they understood things, their whole worldview was being rocked because he wasn't going about life the way that they thought and the way they imagined and the way they expected. And so something, as he had taught from the very start, Something fundamentally had to change inside of them. Something. Something had to change in their mind. Something had to change in their heart. Something had to change in their spirit. Something had to change in their perspective, in the way that they were seeing things. Something had to change in their expectations of what they thought was about to happen. Something fundamentally needed to change. And so these disciples, I mean, they're standing there. They sent Peter in. All right, Peter, it's on you, man. Go in there and tell him how we feel about this. We're confused. Because this is the way things are going to happen. And this is what we think, anyway. And this is what he's saying. These two things, they don't, they don't line up. They don't mesh. They don't go together. Because they've got in their minds a glorious kingdom and they're ruling at his side. He's talking about getting arrested and killed in Jerusalem. Two different things. No, make no sense. So, so if you don't like that, you're so sure you're right, so what's the best thing to do? Take Jesus aside and rebuke him. Okay, that's the best thing to do. Because by doing that, you can set him straight so that he comes into line with what you think. Hmm. Now you're laughing. 
some of you, are kind of laughing at that. But that's what people do. All right? That's what people do. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to give Jesus a talking to. So Jesus looks back at the disciples. Why? Because he knows they were behind it. It's Peter. You know, he's going to take the brunt of it. But they all were talking about it. He knew that. They sent Peter in, do the rebuking part. And he takes a good look at them. As they were watching the fallout of what Peter's words were. And and then he, then he addresses Peter. But he might as well have been addressing all of them. Because they were all in on it. And so he addresses Peter and he, he said, Get thee behind me who? Satan. All right, that word means adversary. An adversary is your foe. It's someone who opposes you. All right? And Satan certainly opposes Jesus. We know from the very start when Jesus began his ministry or right beforehand, he was led out into the wilderness after he was baptized and he was tempted of the devil. All right, that was Satan. And he had faced that temptation and he went through, we know of three things he was tempted in. And and so he came through all of that and he's starting his ministry. Here he is again. He's got Peter taking him aside. He's going to rebuke him. And he looks at Peter. He looks at the disciple. And he's like, all right, adversary. All right. All right, Satan. You're opposing me right now. And and his words that he spoke to him, the words that, that Jesus spoke to Peter, they indicate a strong and intense emotion. That's what they indicate. They're, they're, this is for real. And this is a for real circumstance. This is a for real moment in the life of Peter and the disciples and Jesus. That it's not just, oh, well, I'm going to correct you now because you know, you're, you're, you're in error. It's not just that. There was more to it. And there was emotion attached to this. There was a reality attached to this. This was a for real moment between all of them. And it was important they understood it that way. Somebody look at Matthew 4.10. Matthew 4.10. Jesus said to him, Away from you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. All right. What you're having here is a repeat of this temptation. Now, I do want to say this, and I want to emphasize this. Jesus, and we know from other places in the Scripture, Jesus it proclaims that Jesus was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. And what temptation implies is that you cannot be tempted with something that you can't do. All right? You just can't. Because it doesn't make any sense to try to tempt somebody with something they can't do. All right? You can tempt me all you want, all right, all right, whatever. I, I don't like, you know, it's just ridiculous. All right, so like you could tempt me, all right, Andy, go jump over the moon. I can't jump over the moon. I'm not very tempted about that. Okay? Or or you can tempt me to do whatever you think you want me to do. But if it's impossible for me to do that, it's not very tempting. I just can't do it. And for Jesus to be tempted, that means that he could have made a decision to do that. And that's an important thing for us to understand about Jesus, is that the temptation lies in the fact that there's something about it that, number one, Jesus could hear and that he could respond to and that he could actually do. And so you have Satan tempting him in Matthew chapter 4, but then you have Peter here again repeating the same temptation again to Jesus. And so Peter gets the same response that Satan got in Matthew 4, right? He got the same response, the same kind of emotion, the same kind of intense and strong emotion that you see in Matthew chapter 4. That's what Peter got. Get thee behind me, Satan. I've heard this temptation before. I know this temptation. And I'm not going to do this. 
This is not something that I'm going to make a decision to say yes to. I'm going to say no to this again. But there was something frustrating, probably, about being tempted again with the same temptation that the devil had already brought your way during the temptation in the wilderness. Now you've got one of your own disciples tempting you in the same way. Right? I don't know if you can imagine a little bit of frustration with that. I can. I, I could see that being a frustrating moment for Jesus. Is that he's got his disciples, and, and again, it wasn't really just one of them, but his disciples are tempting him in the same way. That original temptation had to do with, with the devil saying to Jesus, like, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll make you ruler over all these kingdoms. And what that was was a temptation to skip the hard part and just get all the stuff. That's what the temptation is. You don't, you don't have to die. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to be crucified. You don't have to be arrested. You don't have to be humiliated. You don't have to go through all the things that you got to go through. Let's just skip all that and I'll just, just make you king right now. That was the temptation. And what was Peter saying to him? Lord, just establish the kingdom. We don't need to keep talking about this mess about going to Jerusalem, about, uh, about all getting arrested and about getting crucified and about all the suffering and all that kind of stuff. Just establish the kingdom now. See, it's the same temptation. It's the same temptation to take the easy route. It's the same temptation to just go about and get to the end result now without following the plan and the road and the path that God had for him. Because he knew what, what it entailed. He knew what was ahead of him. And the temptation is, well, I don't want to go through all that, so let's just skip that and we'll just get to the good stuff now. But that's what the devil offered him from the very start. See, and, and there's a real problem with that. And the real problem with that is that that idea, that concept of what the disciples were thinking here, well, this would be a lot easier. Well, it is a lot easier. Well, this would be a lot more convenient. Well, it is more convenient. Well, this is what we think should happen. Well, that wasn't God's plan or purpose, though. Just because you think something doesn't mean it's God. Just because you want something doesn't mean it's God. Just because something makes sense to you doesn't mean it's God. Just because something makes sense to everybody around you doesn't mean it's God. And so Jesus had to do this, and, and, and this was his call, this was his purpose, this was God's plan, the Father's plan for his life, and he knew that. And, yeah, he could have taken an easier route. The temptation was real. He could have. But he wasn't going to. And so he responded with some emotion. He responded with some strong emotion. He responded with some intensity. And he's like, no. You need to get behind me. The idea is, is that Peter was suggesting he gained the crown without the cross. That's the same thing Satan suggested too. It's just not the way it goes. The other thing he talked to is like, and, and what Peter and the disciples were looking at, they're like, why don't you establish your kingdom like people do? Jesus, why don't you establish your kingdom like people do? Well, that, that's a false kingdom. It wouldn't have been what God wanted. It wouldn't have been the spiritual kingdom that the Father had called Jesus to establish. It had just been another kingdom like people established. The wrong thing. It's the wrong thing, but that's what Satan offered him too. So that's why he had the intense reaction to this, because he'd already seen this, he'd already been through this, he'd already said no to this. And now you have it coming through his disciples. Yeah, that's a problem. That's a problem. And, he had, and so he said, get behind me. In other words, stop. Stop doing the work of Satan. Well, what is that? Temptation? Yeah. What is that? Self-preservation? Yeah. What is that? Disobedience? Yeah, that's the work of Satan. What's the first uh, 
word in that hyphenated self-preservation. What is it? Self. You think about the idea of what we're talking about, self. Well, selfishness has to do with the preservation of self. And if you you can tell me all that, well, Andy, we have a natural tendency toward that in our lives. Yeah, we do. I understand that. And two-year-olds stomp their feet, and three-year-olds stomp their feet and say no to everything. And they're selfish, and they're rude, and they have to be taught differently. Unless they're not, and then they become 18-year-olds that stomp their feet and say no to everything, and they're just rude. But that's because we have to be taught. And just because something is a natural tendency in human beings doesn't mean it's something that we need to act on. It's not something that needs to drive our behavior. Because like a lots of natural tendencies, but they can't drive our behavior. That over the years we learned that if we're going to live in any kind of a social contract, that we're going to have to somehow control some of those natural urges and tendencies of human beings in order to live in some kind of civilization. The way it is. So we teach our children, hopefully, how to live in civilized society, how to get along with other people, how to live in some kind of harmony with those that are around them. And so we can talk about self-preservation, but self-preservation is, is, does not have to be the final word on everything, does it? We'd have no heroes if that were the case. No real heroes. I'm not talking about fake heroes that the media says are heroes and aren't heroes. I'm talking about real heroes. People that are willing to lay down their lives for others. Because they see something bigger and they see something more important. And they respond to that. So here we have disciples. Here we have Jesus. Okay, stop. Stop doing the work of Satan. What's the work of Satan? Well, Tempting me, number one, is the work of Satan. All right, and tempting Jesus is the work of Satan. He had taken him up on the up onto a high mountain. He taken him onto the top of the temple. I mean, that was the work of Satan, and he had tempted Jesus. Now here we have the disciples doing the same work. Stop doing that. Stop doing that work of Satan and temptation. What else? Stop doing that same work of Satan and self-preservation. Because sometimes you're not the most important thing. Sometimes, sorry, sometimes your selfishness is in the way of something bigger that needs to happen. You need to lay that down. Or have enough sense about you that it's time to lay that down. Disobedience, that's the work of Satan. So we need to stop those things. Stop that. Stop it. And and finally, get thee behind me, Satan. You need to remove yourself. You know, that, that phrase there means to depart. In other words, it's time for you to go. Peter, disciples, get thee behind me. Time for you to go. Time to leave. Stop this. Stop doing what you're doing. Stop talking this nonsense. And it's time for you to go. That's what he's telling. So remove yourself. And so, what, what were they really asking Jesus to do? And they didn't see it this way, but what were they asking Him to do? The reality of it was, they were asking Him to violate the command of the Father. Because He was telling them, this is what the Father has for me. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what lies ahead in Jerusalem. These are the things that are going to take place. These are the things that are going to happen. These are the things that, that are going to be my life. And you're going to witness these things. You're going to see all of this happen to me. Oh, no, never. That's what they told Him. So, they're telling him, they're saying, well, you need to violate the command of the Father. What? What? Because it doesn't line up with the way you think it should happen? We're going to violate the command of the Father because of that? You're going to tell Jesus to violate the command of the Father? All I want you to hear from that is how powerful your perception is, how powerful your expectations are. That's all I want you to see. You see how powerful their expectations were right then? That they were going to ask Jesus, even though they couldn't sit there blinded to it, but they were asking Jesus to violate the command of the Father because He wasn't meeting their expectations. Right? 
Now, I know that sounds crazy put in that term, in those terms, but I want you to think about that's exactly what they were doing. That's not going to happen. That's a loser, and I mean a loser perspective right there. All right, this is what I think should happen. This is the way things should go. So, Jesus, what I need you to do now is I want you to just not listen to the Father. Just just, just say no to whatever he's telling you to do. And let's do it our way because I think it's a lot better. All right. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but that's how powerful our perceptions are. And that's how powerful our expectations are about how things should go. Because that's what they were doing. They were looking at it like, well, things need to go this way. He's talking this nonsense. So we need to stop talking that nonsense, Jesus, and let's come on over on board to what I want. Yeah, well, that's violating the command of the Father. What else would have to happen? That they have to forsake the work of salvation? Yeah, that's what they're asking him to do. Establish your kingdom now, Jesus. Forget all that stuff. Forsake, don't worry about salvation. You know, I know the whole world and all eternity, you know, salvation. Forget that. We need to get this kingdom established so we can start ruling and reigning with you, because that's what we're looking at. Yeah, um, that's why we have to be careful what we let manifest in our minds. Because they were asking him to disobey the Father and forget about the work of salvation right there. Just so what they thought should come to pass would come to pass. That's kind of crazy. But it happens. Happens in our lives. It happened in their lives. If it happened to them, it could happen to you, right? Right? That's why we have these examples of the disciples. Because stuff that happens to them, that that's what happens to us. Things that they think, a lot of times that's stuff that we think. Things that they say, well, we might find ourselves saying some of those things. And Jesus' response to us, just like it was to them, is, are you so dull? And the answer is, yep, yep, afraid so. Afraid so. So, uh, all I want you to get out of this, uh, this portion of this, is that that's just such a powerful thing. That your perception and your expectations are just super powerful. And in those things, you have to be careful of, what you allow, what you allow to fester in your mind and what you allow to manifest in your thoughts. Because they become so powerful, they can blind us to what really matters. And that's what exactly why it happened here. Because I don't think if they really could see what really mattered, you know, salvation of all mankind, I don't think they would have asked Jesus to abandon that. Not really. I don't think they would ask Jesus to uh, just disobey the Father straight up. I don't think those words would have come out of their mouth. But because they were under such a delusion from their own expectations and from their own thoughts and from their own what they wanted, that that's exactly what they were asking Him. And I think Jesus' response was designed to snap them out of that. Because He saw it for what it was. He wasn't under their delusion. You follow me? He's not under their expectations. He's not under what they want. He doesn't live under delusion like that. And so his response was from his perspective. His response was from the perspective of, oh, so you're telling me, you're telling me that you want me to to, just to violate the command of the Father and you want me to forsake my purpose in the salvation of all mankind for all time. That's what you're telling me you want me to do? Get behind me, Satan. Stop that. And you guys need to move along. That's his perspective. That's what he sees. Those of you that have been through the internship, there was probably a moment during the internship where that happened to you. Maybe, maybe not. And if it did, you might not remember at this point. But there's there's moments when we're involved in conversation, we're involved in something, and you will elicit a response 
from me or someone else. And that response seems like it's completely, completely overboard or completely out of place or completely doesn't make any sense or completely just seems like it is just, what are they talking about? Well, that's because there's this perspective, your perspective, and then there's the person's perspective that you're talking to. And sometimes those two things are way different. And part of what the internship has to do with is changing the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see God and the way that we're going to interact with one another. And until that change begins to happen in our hearts and minds, there's going to be those moments that make no sense. Zero. And so here you have these guys thinking, I'm looking out for Jesus. Hey, Peter, you need to talk to him. You sound a little crazy right now. So why don't you go talk to him? Straighten him out. I mean, you know, he likes you a lot. So you go on over there and do that. You straighten him out, and then we'll get back on track for this kingdom thing. That was their perspective. Next thing you know, he's in, in strong, what I, what I say, strong and intense emotion. Rebuking Peter, calling him Satan, and telling him to get behind him. In other words, get out of here. You need to get out of here. You need to stop doing the work of Satan in my life. Now, you think about, would that seem? I mean, until your brain changes, you hear him, you see Peter, you're thinking Peter's going to go help him out, right? And he just responds, he's like, you're the devil. You need to shut up. Seems out of place, but who was right? Jesus was right. Their perspective was wrong. The way they were seeing things was wrong. And, and Jesus knew, Jesus knew that this could not prevail. That his perspective, the disciples' perspective, the way that they saw things, the way that they were expecting things, the way they were seeing things, that could not prevail. In fact, he calls them a stumbling block. What's a stumbling block? Anybody know? Just simple definition? Something you trip over. Uh, it's, a, it's like a trap. It's like a dangerous trap, all right? And and this dangerous trap gets put in the way, kind of camouflaged, so that you're going along, and all of a sudden, boom! You trip over it, and you hit the ground. And then you're at somebody's mercy. Anybody's mercy. And so he says to him, he's like, you, you are, and he calls Peter this, and the disciples, he said, you are a dangerous trap to me. Now, I, I would say that these are Jesus' best friends, from what I can understand. They lived together, they ate together, they spent time together, they did all these things together. They were best friends. These were his best friends, okay? But man, they weren't right on this one. They weren't right. And even though there were 12 of them and only one of him, he was right and he knew it. And so he let him know just flat out. He's like, you need to stop this. You need to stop being Satan in my life. You have become a danger. You, you have become, not the situation, because we try to make things nicer. But he didn't try to make things nicer. Like you, Peter, you, James and John, you, Andrew, you all, you decide, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, all y'all, you <laughs> have become a dangerous trap to me. And I tell you what, this was the most deadly advice ever given. Okay, that's why he reacted that way. Because if he had taken their advice, we wouldn't be safe. If he had taken their advice, there would be no uh, salvation work that would have been done. There had been no work of mercy and grace that would have been done through the cross. All those things, none of those things would have happened, right? That's a dangerous moment right here. It's a dangerous moment when 12 of your best friends uh, gang up on you for an intervention, all right? And they try to get you straightened out. And it's a temptation. That's a dangerous moment right there. 
And that's why you got the reaction that you got. Now, now Peter, when Jesus changed his name, you remember this? His name was Simon. And he changed his name to Cephas. And that word means rock. Peter means rock. And I don't know, have you ever tripped over a rock? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can build a wall out of a rock. You know, put that rock in that wall. You can build a fence out of a rock. You can build a house out of a rock. You can build a fireplace out of rocks. All those things. You can do, do a lot of stuff with rocks. But if you don't see one, man, you hit one and you fall, that hurts. That hurts. And, and I know, it, you know when, I, when I hike, I'm in the woods. And I like to hike in the wintertime because I don't have this problem. In the wintertime, it's nice and flat. You're just on the snow. Alright? And as it gets dark and you get tired, you know, I mean, you're just on top of the snow, so you're just shuffling along in your snowshoes. But any other season of the year, if you're not picking your feet up, I don't care if it's broad daylight, if you're not picking your feet up, eventually as you get tired, you're going to trip on something. A root, a rock, something like that. And that's just no fun. Or as it gets dark and you can't see certain things, you can't see these rocks or whatever, or the root that's on the ground, you're going to trip over that thing. And so Peter has this opportunity right here. He, he has an opportunity. And I know the other 11, they came to him and was like, Peter, you need to go talk to him, straighten him out and all this stuff. But he had an opportunity. He's going to be the rock. He is the rock, but what's he going to be? What kind of rock? You're going to be a rock I'm going to build a fence out of? You're going to be a rock I'm going to build a building out of? You're going to be a rock I'm going to build my church on? Or are you just going to be a rock sitting in the shadows and I'm going to trip over you? What are you going to be? Well, in this moment right here, he's going to be the rock in the shadow. He's going to trip over. See, he'd already proclaimed a couple verses before, on you I'll build my church. They could be that kind of rock. But right here he's that kind of rock that you trip over and you hurt him. So this is a dangerous moment. This was a dangerous, dangerous moment. And that's why perspective matters. It just matters. And so what is perspective? This is what he's talking about here. It's a mental state. It's a mental state. It's a knowing, quote-unquote, a mind, affections. All those words are the words that are indicated by the original language here. Your affections on something, what you're thinking about, how you're seeing it, the mind that you have towards something. A state of knowing. So we look at Romans eight five. Romans eight five. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. Alright, so Paul's talking to the Romans, and what does he say there? Do you get it? I mean, I'm not trying to get this complicated or anything. What did he say? He's like, alright, so you want to think about, you know, you're all consumed about things of the world and the way the world works and all that kind of stuff. What are you going to set your mind on? Things of the world. You're all thinking about God. You want to concern yourself with God. You want to concern yourself with things of the Spirit. What are you going to set your mind on? Things of the Spirit. Okay, this is not a mystery. There's no mysterious thing going on here. It's what we're going to choose that we're going to do. It's how we're going to choose to live. And, and really it comes down to is where do we believe that, that we have the most wisdom? Where it is that we have the most success? What is it that we think matters more? What does success look like? And what is success? I mean, those kind of definitions are important. Because if success to you is lots of people or money or power or, or whatever those kind of things are, then you're going to pursue that. 
But if success to you involves other things, then you'll pursue that. But it will make a difference about what you're going to set your mind on and how you're going to go about doing things. It will make a difference. And that's why it's important that you get a hold of that in your own life and in your own mind and your own heart. You need to understand what you believe success is. And success doesn't necessarily have to do with what other people say it is. And success doesn't necessarily have to do with what other people think it is. But you have to get a hold of that. Because it will affect how you go about your life. And it will affect how you go about your relationship with God. And it will affect the things that you hear Him say and the things that you hear Him tell you to do. And what you're willing to respond to, it will affect all of those things. These guys, they had an idea in their head. When you say kingdom, they had an idea in their head. Well, what's a kingdom? Well, they understood that. They, they're, they're living under the rule of the Romans. There was a kingdom. I think we can all agree on that. Now, if you're thinking about earthly kingdoms, the Romans, I mean, they had a kingdom. All right? And you can call it whatever you want, but that's what it was. And so they had in their mind, well, that's what a kingdom is. Or they could look at Egypt and they could say, all right, well, that's what a kingdom is. Or they could look at their own history and they could see guys like David and Solomon and those that, that had come after them. That's what a kingdom is. Or they could look over and they could see the Chaldeans and they could see what that kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and all of them, and what the Persian kingdom looked like. They had an idea in their mind. That's what a kingdom is. From their history, from their present, from whoever they were, they had this idea in their mind, this is what a kingdom is. So Jesus said, all right, well, here's my kingdom. Well, they had in their minds, all right, well, this is what he means by that. That's not what he meant by that. And that, but that affected the way they were going to go about their, their life and their ministry and their relationship with Jesus. Because they had it already set in their head. Well, obviously, everybody knows that. Well, there's a lot of things in the, in the kingdom of God. There's a lot of things that Jesus teaches that aren't very obvious. At least not to the rest of the world. He makes them obvious to His people. But we have to be willing to receive that and change our minds about it. Somehow, some way. I mean, Jesus did things like He gathered a crowd of thousands and just sent them all away. Why? Because He didn't care about the crowd of thousands. That wasn't what was important. He sent away a crowd of thousands of people to teach His disciples something. Twelve guys. Thousands gone. Twelve people. Because that's what mattered. That was what was important. There are times that He taught multitudes. Sure. Times that he did healings and all this other stuff. Yeah. But then he would withdraw himself from those things and he'd just go be alone with the Father. Why? Because that was more important right then. But what if all those people leave? I don't think he's too worried about it. Because it didn't matter. It didn't matter. He had something that he understood in his own heart, in his own mind, that this is what matters. He let the Father define that. And he, he let the Father tell him what mattered. He let the Father tell him how this is going to go. He let the Father tell him this is your path. He let the Father tell him this is what I have for you. He let the Father tell him this is your purpose. He wasn't ruled by the crowds. He wasn't ruled by the disciples. He wasn't ruled by his family. He wasn't ruled by his friends. He was responding to his Heavenly Father. So he had made a decision that that was more important than all the rest of those things. We have to really decide if it's going to be the things of the earth or the things of God that are going to matter. Because our future depends on it. You, know, you don't find too many Christians that don't that are not, not going to tell you, hey, do you really want to like flow with Jesus and His purpose for your life and His plan? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You sure? Well, at least up until the point it differs from what you want, right? Right? No, and I mean that. I'm not trying to be like rude about it. I'm just saying that that's really what happens. That 
it, we're, we're all about, oh, I want to just flow on what Jesus has up until the point that it really comes into conflict with, well, yeah, but I really want to do this, or I really expected I'd be this by now, or I really expected I would have this, or, or, or that my life would look like that by now. And, and it would come into conflict in those moments, like, all right, well, these are my expectations. This is what I thought was going to happen, but this is flowing with Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if Peter and Andrew thought that they would, you know, be running the fishing business by the time they were 33, but I, they ended up with Jesus, right? I, I don't know, you know, if, if, I don't know, Simon the Zealot thought he'd be head zealot by the time he was 32, but he ended up with Jesus. You know, I didn't know, I don't know if Matthew, Levi, thought he'd be head tax collector by the time he was 35, but he ended up with Jesus, didn't he? Didn't know if he thought he'd have a bigger house, you know, or, or more camels, or donkeys, or whatever they collected. I don't know. But he just ended up with Jesus. He just ended up with Jesus. And so flowing in Jesus requires God's point of view if you're going to flow in with Jesus. And God's point of view is not your point of view by definition. We can only come into alignment with that a little at a time. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's a snap of the finger and say, okay, God, I want your point of view. Boom, you got it. I don't. There's no way that I know of. Now, I'm not saying God can't do miracles. I know He does miracles. And if He does that, awesome. I just have never seen that. What I've seen is that people come into line where, where Christ reveals His mind to us gradually. A little at a time. That we begin to see more and more of how Jesus goes about things. We begin to see more and more about how Jesus sees things. How He sees people. How He sees the people around us. How He sees me. How He sees you. And gradually that begins to come into our heart. That begins to come into our mind. Because step one, if any person wants to come after Christ, step one, you have to deny yourself and renounce yourself. That's step one. Because we cannot substitute self-will for God's will. can't do it. That ain't flowing with Jesus. That's trying to get Him to flow with us. And those are two different things. Two different things. Because if we're trying to get Jesus to flow with us, that's where all that frustration comes in. All that Christian frustration comes in when you're trying to get Jesus, hey, come on board, you know what I'm doing over here. I Yeah, He doesn't care about that too much. He cares about you, but I don't know. I don't know. He gives a rip about you know coming on board with flowing in your will. I don't think he does. I don't think he cares much about that at all. But he invites you to flow with his will. He does care about that, and he does care about you. He cares about you enough. He tries to get you to come on over and flow in his will. But as long as you're battling. As long as you're fighting to get your way. Remember I talked about that two, three-year-old stomping her feet, saying no all the time? Well, you got to think about, it's like, coming into the kingdom, we got to learn a new way to think. And we got to learn a new way to be. It's like our parents, you know, they did a good job, hopefully, of getting us ready for civilized society, teaching us how to be. Well, in the kingdom, we got to get ready to be in kingdom society now. Which is a whole different thing. The way we're going to see things, the way we're going to understand things, the way we're going to interpret things. If you think about the signs of the time, well, the signs of the time have to be interpreted from God's perspective, not ours. The, the way that we're looking at our world needs to be interpreted from God's perspective, not what we want or some thing that we have in our head. God's purposes and plans for us as we move forward down that road that we have, 
That needs to be according to what God has for us and not what we thought. Our 10-year plan or our 5-year plan. But finding ourselves in the middle and flowing in Jesus. So I want to encourage you tonight that uh, as you look at the disciples, the reason we got this story is because we're the disciples. The reason we understand or have an account of this isn't because it made the disciples look good. I know they wrote the Gospels, but they included stories that made them look bad to teach us something. And so I hope we can learn the lesson. I hope we can take to heart the lesson and take hold of God's point of view just a little more tonight. Just a little bit more of the way He sees things. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And as, as I'm praying, I want to encourage you to respond. And, and just really, you respond. You respond to, to what you've heard tonight. You respond to what God's doing. Father, I pray that uh, we would lay down our selfishness tonight, our self-preservation, all the stuff that hinders us from really just taking on your perspective. We all have things in our head. They're just there. Things that we grew up with, things that we were taught, or, or things that somebody said, things that we read in other books, whatever it was. We all have things in our head. But I pray, God, that nothing in our head would be more important than what you show us and what you say about it. I pray nothing in our expectations or nothing in, in the way that we're seeing things would be so big and so strong that it can't be challenged and changed by you. Because Jesus, we, we, need to, we need more of the way you see things. We need more of the way you hear things. We need more of the way that you're going about things. And less of us. Less of our past. Less of our experiences. And more of you. Because God, I, I pray that you, you would really take, just set us free from the things of the past. Set us free from, from the, the buildings and the structures in our mind. Set us free so that we can be free to allow you to show us something new today. To show us something true today. To show us more of who you are. More of what the world really is. More of the perspective of the future and what our life is. That God, you would help us to really take hold of your definition of success, your definition of what it means to, to, to live and to live more abundantly. Not ours. God, I pray that you would forgive us for doing the work of Satan, for trying to push our will onto you. Of doing the work of Satan, of trying to push what we want onto you and what you have. So God, I pray that uh, we would allow for things to be challenged, ideas to be challenged, thoughts to be challenged, perspectives to be challenged, and changed in us. In Jesus' name. God, I ask that we'd be open your will and your purpose. And God will be open to seeing things differently and understanding things differently. I just pray God you keep us. We just lay down we just lay down our thoughts, our ideas, our perspectives. Have your way, God. Have your way, God. Have your way. I ask it in Jesus' name. Is this agree by saying amen? Amen. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies.
That's good. He's really cool. Mm-hmm. You know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the comunidad. No, yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Okay. We, we homies. You home, yeah. 